0: Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, whenever you prefer to study your scriptures. I'm Jared Halverson, and this is Unshaken, and I'm glad that we could spend some time today in the Word of God. I keep trying to adjust how I'm filming this. Last year, it was pretty much all at my office at the Institute. This year, I've been doing more of it at home. Uh, One of you sent me a wonderful message, complete with pictures uh, of me in your home and feeling that you were in mine and that you preferred the home-to-home kind of sense there, a conversation among friends. Someone else made a, a good piece of feedback in one of the comments just saying yeah, it was a little too close and it felt like i was invading your personal space so i, I apologize i hope there's some some healthy distance here i am very open to feedback i feel like i've developed some pretty thick skin over the years of teaching I'm, I'm a believer that customer is king or in this case that student is king not in terms of content i don't believe in it in scratching itching ears and just saying what people want to hear But in terms of how it's presented, I would love to know uh, what is working and what could be improved. I used to give my students a 3 by 5 card sometime during the semester. And one side, tell me what I'm doing right that that I shouldn't change. And on the other side, tell me what I'm doing wrong so I can fix it. And make it anonymous so that you can be brutally honest if you feel like you need to be. And I found that it was best to do that somewhere in the middle of the semester instead of at the end. That way it was a biopsy instead of an autopsy, and I could make some adjustments mid-semester in hopes of improving the experience for my students. I feel the same with you. Students, just in a larger classroom. Now today we're going to be studying the second part of Joseph Smith history. The first part covers the first vision. The second part, the visitations of the angel Moroni and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And the third part, the restoration of the priesthood, which is brief and we'll save that for a couple weeks from now. Now to set up what we're going to talk about today, we need to do a brief flashback to the end of last week. As Joseph Smith emerges from a grove that had just become sacred. Have you ever had a life-changing experience and after it was over wondered, what do I do now? I see it often in my young single adult students that come home from a life-changing experience and come home ready to take on the next mission, and the next mission isn't so quick to come. And they start to wonder and worry, what am I supposed to do with myself now? Sometimes we feel that way after we've been released from a calling that demanded so much from us. And conversely, sometimes we feel that way when we just accepted a calling and we're on that spiritual high of accepting a, a call to serve and to sacrifice. And then all of a sudden, it hits us. What have I gotten myself into? I remember in the MTC, I heard a definition of character that has stuck with me ever since. That character is the ability to follow through with a decision after the emotion of making a decision has passed. Would you agree with that? That sometimes when we make a decision to accept a calling, or to serve a mission, or to head off to college, or to get married, whatever it might be, and there's this emotion, this powerful spiritual confirmation that what you're deciding to do is right. And that emotion carries us into making the decision. But then the decision is behind us, and sometimes the emotion in making it is behind us as well. And will our character carry us through? As we begin studying these verses today, beginning in Joseph Smith History, chapter 1, verse 27, we'll see a lot of Joseph Smith's character and how it was tested. Because after the epiphany that Joseph Smith had in the Sacred Grove, years passed with next to nothing happening to him, spiritually speaking. And so often our hardest times come in the darkness that follows the light or silence after you know you've heard the voice of God it's almost like the opposite of Lehi's dream, where there is a dark and dreary waste that doesn't precede our partaking of the fruit, but comes right after it. I've talked with so many people in the past that are feeling that. It's what St. John of the Cross described as the dark night of the soul. You've had spiritual experiences in the past, but why aren't I having them in my present? I've always loved the verse at the end of Second Chronicles where King Hezekiah has had so much divine aid and direction through almost all of his reign, but in this one instance, he doesn't receive the guidance of God that he was so used to. And in this fascinating verse, 2 Chronicles 32-31, it says that God left him to try him that he might know all that was in his heart. I'll admit that sometimes the Spirit leaves us because we've offended him, or we have failed to fully invite him into our lives. But other times, in spite of our deepest longings, God does leave us to try us, to see all that is in our heart. He wants to see if our character will kick in, if we'll keep pedaling our bike, even as he takes his hand off the back of the seat. Notice how Joseph Smith describes this space of time Between the first vision, 1820, and the coming of the angel Moroni, 1823. Three long years of wondering, what's the next step I'm supposed to take? Verse 27, I continued to pursue my common vocations in life. Talk about coming down from the mountaintop. Out of the grove and into the field to keep farming, to keep working hard with your hands. It's hard enough to keep God first in our lives when there's nothing else on our to-do list, but to make sure that he comes first and foremost in spite of the common vocations in life. I remember being warned about that when I got home from my mission. Missionary life is hard. It's demanding. But it's really simple. You only have one objective, and you can pursue it wholeheartedly. All your heart, might, mind, and strength, right? The challenge is when you come home and all of a sudden you are confronted with common vocations and school and work and a social life and all these demands pulling you in a million different directions, can you still seek ye first the kingdom of God when other things are pulling at you? And not only the common vocations, but the not-so-common persecutions. Sadly, in Joseph's case, they were all too common. He says that all the time he was suffering severe persecution at the hands of all classes of men both religious and irreligious, because I continued to affirm that I had seen a vision. Now, notice that last phrase. In fact, if you fast forward a few verses and look at verse 58, he says, Owing to my continuing to assert that I had seen a vision, persecution still followed me. You see what Joseph is doing? It would have been one thing simply not to deny these things when confronted about them. But instead, Joseph continued to affirm and assert the reality of his vision. And notice back in verse 27, who was persecuting him? All classes of men. Not just the ones above him, the upper classes, that would have looked down their noses at this rustic country bumpkin claiming communication with God. But even the lower classes. And the Smith family was counted among them, who perhaps looked at them thinking, who's this uppity family who thinks they're better than us or is trying to rise in the social scale? You see, Joseph Smith had to face both pride from above and pride from below. All classes were against him. And not just social class, but in terms of religious perspective, both the religious and the irreligious persecuted him. It's as if Joseph's experience was too miraculous for the skeptical and too extra-biblical for the religious. But think of it this way. If Joseph had enemies both above and below, if he had enemies to the right and the left, if he had enemies both religious and irreligious, to me that's good evidence that he had found his way into the Goldilocks zone, where he is proving contraries and trying to strike a balance between extremes. The celestial center of these polarizing issues can be a lonely place to be. But I have found that often if I can find that middle ground between justice and mercy, between faith and works, between individuality and community, between inclusivity and exclusivity. Anytime I feel like I'm proving contraries, yes, I tend to alienate both extremes, but it's those extremes that need to find balance by working together, compromising. I remember a class at Vanderbilt I helped TA for. It was in American Religious History. And the day that we covered Mormonism, the professor asked me to cover the lecture instead. I had a little exercise planned for my fellow students. We all stood up in a circle, and I asked them to imagine the person across the circle from them as their ideological opposite. If you're a Catholic, pretend that you're standing across from a Protestant. Or if you're a high church Protestant, you're standing across from a low church Protestant. Or if you're a person of faith, you're standing across from someone who claims to be a pure rationalist. You get my idea? And once they started kind of perceiving their opposite across the way, I ducked my way into the middle of the circle and stood there as the personification of Mormonism. And I said to them, one of the ironies of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is it proves so many of these contraries. It combines, it forces them to grapple with each other. I used to joke that if Catholicism and Protestantism were to get married and have a child, it would look a lot like Mormonism. Or if Judaism and Christianity came together, their offspring would again look like the restored gospel. Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, Old Testament temple, New Testament church. So many contraries here. And it's beautiful to see them proven, balanced in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, as I said to this circle of students, if you were to throw something at your ideological adversary across the way, you'd probably hit the Mormon in the middle. And in fact, in early church history, often people would take aim at Latter-day Saints because they were a convenient whipping boy to really take aim a little higher and a little further at their real adversary across the way. Protestants could say, see Catholics, this is what happens with a hierarchy. You have a theocracy in Nauvoo. And Catholics would say, oh no, see Protestants, this is what happens when you establish this priesthood of all believers and let anybody speak for God. Skeptics would say, you see, religionists, this is what religious enthusiasm leads to. And the faithful would say, oh no, skeptics, this is merely an enlightenment ploy to make fun of revealed religion. I remember years ago in grad school reading a fascinating article by one of the great historians of early American religion, Gordon Wood. Not a member of our church, but in what I still consider, 40 years later, one of the most insightful summaries of the restored gospel Gordon Wood said this, Mormonism was undeniably the most original and persecuted religion of this period or of any period of American history. It defied as no other religion did both the Orthodox culture and the evangelical counterculture. Yet at the same time, it drew heavily on both these cultures. You see how it would offend both by combining both? It combined within itself different tendencies of thought. From the outset, it was a religion in tension, poised like a steel spring by the contradictory forces pulling within it. Again, in my mind, that is simply what Joseph Smith himself said that by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. The vertical and the horizontal, the left and the right, the male and the female. So many different contraries to be proven in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if Dr. Wood ever stumbled across that statement from the prophet, but what he said next To me is one of the most amazing descriptions of the proving of contraries again this is joseph being persecuted from all classes from both the religious and the irreligious from all sides he's in the middle of the circle and everyone is throwing something at him whether because they're attacking him or because they really want to attack someone further behind but listen to this statement it is amazing it's full of technical terms so bear with me but i've never seen a better description Gordon Wood said, Mormonism was both mystical and secular. You sense why both the religious and the irreligious would hate Joseph? It was both restorationist and progressive, communitarian and individualistic, hierarchical and congregational, authoritarian and democratic, antinomian and Arminian, anti-clerical and priestly, revelatory and empirical, utopian and practical, ecumenical, and nationalist. I've never seen a more dense description of what made the restored church and restored gospel tick. It is the proving of contraries. And I've never seen anything do a better job of trying to keep these things in tension, in balance, so that truth can be made manifest. The next time you get persecuted by people on either extreme of an issue, Perhaps you're standing right where you need to be. Now keep going. In verse 28, we see what's happening during these three years between First Vision and Angel Moroni. Having been forbidden to join any of the religious sects of the day and being of very tender years, and skip ahead, I was left to all kinds of temptations and mingling with all kinds of society. Now we're going to see some other details in this verse in a moment, but think about those phrases. My heart goes out to you who are new to the church. Because so often when you meet with the missionaries and learn the gospel and you gain a testimony of the truth, you know that it's true, but you don't know how it's supposed to be lived. And so much of the lifestyle of a Latter-day Saint, at first at least, comes across as a big to-don't list rather than a long to-do list. I know I'm not supposed to drink or smoke or coffee or tea or premarital sex or any of those kinds of things. There's a whole list of things that I know I'm forbidden to do. I know what what not to do to be a good disciple of Jesus Christ, but I'm still not sure what to do to truly follow him. I feel for Joseph here. He's of tender years, literally in his case, but for new converts, of tender years in the church. He was left to himself himself. And sadly, so often after a convert joins the church and the missionaries, their missionaries, are transferred, that new convert feels like they've been left to themselves as well, wondering where they fit. Do I really fit in with this new group of fellow saints? I I don't think I fit in anymore with my old circle of friends. No wonder you start mingling with all kinds of society, just looking for some kind of companionship or camaraderie. And sadly, often as they are searching for the society they can be a part of, they do fall into all kinds of temptations. It is hard to be faithful alone. We need each other, and especially to those who are of tender years. Can we do more than simply forbid them to do things that are against our religion? Can we put our arms around them and welcome them into this society of saints and show them how to follow the teachings? of Jesus Christ. Now there are those who fall away and some who even turn away and then turn back and attack the church. And there's a phrase here in verse 28 that means a lot to me in terms of those people. I have worked with a lot of people that have struggled in their faith and many who have left the church and end up attacking it. There's a lot of strong feeling there and unfortunately A lot of times, in our zeal to defend the faith, we end up offending the other person. Notice this phrase in the middle of verse 28. Joseph laments that he was persecuted by those who ought to have been my friends, and to have treated me kindly. We'll see in a moment just how much friends meant to him. And if they supposed me to be deluded. Now, is that how we often feel about those who are struggling in their faith? Or those that are attacking the church? Oh, they're just deluded. But notice what Joseph says. When he was labeled with that delusion, they should have been my friends. They should have treated me kindly. And they should have endeavored in a proper and affectionate manner to have reclaimed me. I've never seen a better description of how we ought to treat people that we disagree with To me, it's so sad when I see the faithful descend to the same level of sarcasm or snarkiness of, of those who are attacking their faith. It's like what Elder Robert D. Hales once said, that the worst thing we can do when someone attacks us and says that we're not Christian is to prove them right by the way we respond to them. If we feel they're wrong for leaving the church or attacking the church, then do we still treat them like friends? Do we treat them kindly? do we endeavor in a proper and affectionate manner to reclaim them. They may mock our faith and deny our hope, but if we can make our charity undeniable, inescapable, then there can always be hope for a return to the faith for them. It is only charity that never faileth. Now, with that being the case for Joseph Smith, is it any wonder... They frequently fell into many foolish errors and displayed the weakness of youth and the foibles of human nature. Now last year in the video we did on Ether chapter 12, when we studied verse 27, we talked a little bit about the difference between weakness, singular, and weaknesses, plural. Because both of those words coexist in that verse. I love that Joseph Smith, probably without even noticing it, is using both the singular and the plural side by side here too. Foolish errors, plural weakness of youth, singular, foibles of human nature, plural. He had human weakness, and not just during his youth, throughout his life, just like the rest of us. And unfortunately, sometimes, as we succumb to our weakness, we fall into weaknesses. But please keep in mind the difference, and don't beat yourself up for the unavoidable human weakness that is a part of all of our mortal experience. And if I can borrow a thought from Elder Dallin H. Oaks, there is a difference between sins and mistakes, and they should be treated differently. We can be patient and understanding with both. But sins need to be repented of, whereas mistakes, it's just a part of our human nature. I think you get a sense of both here. Foolish errors, weakness of youth, and yes, sometimes even the foibles of human nature leading me into diverse temptations offensive in the sight of God. Now, before we let our mind wander too far, because unfortunately that also is a part of fallen human nature, Joseph reigns us in and says, In making this confession, no one need suppose me guilty of any great or malignant sins. A disposition to commit such was never in my nature. All of this is great advice for any of us. Do not confuse human weakness for actual weaknesses. Don't confuse mere mistakes for actual sin. And even when it comes to sin, don't jump to conclusions. Don't don't paint a worst-case scenario and imagine what they must be doing. Don't get cynical. Don't succumb to what we've come to call cancel culture, where we find anything wrong with someone and cancel out everything else that they've done right in their lives. We've gone so past warts and all history, which I'm fine with, to zoom in on the wart to the point that it's now a caricature of the face and that's the only thing we see. I see that so clearly in what has become the mistreatment of early Latter-day Saint history, especially the life of Joseph Smith. Get the full picture of the man. Study Joseph Smith's life in its entirety. Zoom out from the wart and see the entire face. And you will come to understand that, as Joseph says here, great and malignant sins were not part of his nature. I have read so much of what people have said against Joseph Smith. And what so many of them do is that they take a confession on his part of human weakness, and they turn it into dark and malignant sin. I work with people all the time that have taken those kinds of depictions of Joseph Smith and accepted them as if they were court-certified smoking-gun evidence against his character. Just recently, I was responding to a message from someone who'd been struggling with one of the most popular and persuasive pieces of anti-Mormonism out today. And I said to him, in all humility, as a historian of polemicism, that is bad history, but very effective polemic It does a great job of applying cancel culture to joseph smith and the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints but it's not good history and like i said last week there's a lot of disabusing of the public mind that needs to take place for joseph smith to have a fair day in court where evidence can be produced by the lawyers for the defense and not just by the lawyers for the prosecution so rather than magnify let's get back to true proportions And see what Joseph's actually describing in himself? I was guilty of levity. That means lightness, lightheartedness, and probably light-mindedness as well. I sometimes associated with jovial company, etc. Not consistent with that character which ought to be maintained by one who was called of God, as I had been. And then he adds this detail. But this will not seem very strange to anyone who recollects my youth and is acquainted with my native cheery temperament. I love that self-description. I was a happy guy. I had a native cheery temper. My temperament was cheery and it was native. I didn't have to force myself to have an optimistic attitude. I just came wired that way. In fact, that has come as a great blessing for me because I've always considered myself so different from Joseph Smith in some of the important ways. But at least in terms of that personality, I've always been grateful for a native, cheery temperament. And unfortunately, I've sometimes taken too much credit for it myself. Kind of patting myself on the back, thinking, wow, what a good attitude I have, even when hard things happen. Well, over the last decade or so, as I have gotten up close and personal, with a lot of people struggling mightily with mental health, I no longer take credit for a temperament which is simply native to me nor do I blame them for a different temperament that is native to them. Please be careful not to take too much credit or too much blame for your own mental wiring. Joseph's native temperament was a cheery one. He was an incurable optimist. He was the life of the party. He was fun-loving and good-natured and good-humored. He loved people. Emma Smith used to complain that when Joseph went out to hoe the garden, it would end up worse than it started because before he could even turn over much of the dirt, the place would be surrounded, packed with people that were packing down the earth. They just wanted to be with him. And he wanted to be with them. Remember what he said earlier in this verse. He was persecuted by people who should have been his friends. Friendship meant so much to him. Joseph was true to his friends to a fault. He trusted people. He gave them the benefit of any doubt. He was so quick to forgive. It's just the way he was wired. And in fact, good thing for him that he was. Because can you imagine what you'd end up feeling like and how you'd look at the world if so much of your own lifetime was spent being persecuted by the world? you get burned enough times by your closest friends, and I probably wouldn't have any or want any after that. But not Joseph. His native temperament was a cheery one and it served him well of course as we see in this verse it also caused some problems and that's the way every native temperament is go back if you have some time and study alma 38 the video i did for that one last year is about strengths and weaknesses that are all counterparts on the same single coin that every attribute you have has both a heads and a tails a strength and a weakness all worked into one. Joseph's native cheery temperament. That coin, did it have a tails? It did. It got him into trouble sometimes. It got him into jovial company as a youth. But was there a heads to that coin as well? Yes. It's what got him through that persecution and allowed him to love people in spite of being betrayed by them. The same is true of whatever native temperament you might have as well. And if you're struggling with someone else's native temperament, please look for the heads that will help compensate for the tails that are an inherent part of it. You can't have the one without the other. And again, for any of you out there who may be struggling with a native temperament that isn't cheery, if you're dealing with clinical depression particularly, don't blame yourself. This is not your choice. This is simply your wiring. And I pray that those who know you will recognize that in you as well. So that they don't blame you for wiring that you never chose. Now how did Joseph feel about all this? Verse 29, In consequence of these things I often felt condemned for my weakness, there's the singular, and imperfections, there's the plural. And so what did he do? On the evening of the 21st of September, after he had retired to bed for the night, he says, I betook myself to prayer and supplication to Almighty God. And then notice the order here. The first thing he's praying and supplicating God for is this, for forgiveness of all my sins and follies. I want to give them all up. I'm not holding on to a favorite one. And also, second thing he asked for, for a manifestation to me, that I might know of my state and standing before him. I love that he did it in that order. He didn't ask for his state and standing first. Like, hey God, is there anything I should be working on? Anything I should repent of? No, he went in with the assumption. In fact, it wasn't the assumption. It was the clear knowledge. I have things to repent of. Things that I am sorry for. Please forgive me. And then, it's not a matter of Do I need to repent of anything? It's a matter of, have I sufficiently repented of those things? Now, having repented, can I learn from thee my state and standing? Has my scarlet sin, which I recognize, become white as wool? Or is there yet some scrubbing that I need to endure? As Joseph Smith said later in his life, search your hearts and see if you are like God. I have searched mine and feel to repent of all my sins. I love how open, how vulnerable Joseph Smith is with his human weakness, even his diverse temptations. And I love what he says at the end of the verse. I had full confidence in obtaining a divine manifestation. Again, he's asking for his state and standing. I had full confidence it would come. Why? Because I had previously had one. Even though three years had passed, having had a spiritual manifestation in the first vision, he had full confidence that God could yet again speak to him somehow. It's like that beautiful verse at the beginning of Hebrews 11, that faith is not only the assurance of things hoped for, the future tense, but it's also the evidence of things not seen. That's the past tense. Elder David A. Bednar has taught that, that the more evidence we have from the past, the more assurance it gives us for the future. And like this spiraling upward cycle, we build on past experience looking forward to future experience to come. It's exactly what Joseph's doing. Now what happens next is the visitation of the angel Moroni. And in verse 30, 31, and 32, you see a beautiful description of him. And I think by association, a beautiful description of what the resurrection will be like for each of us. Verse 30, while I was thus in the act of calling upon God, I discovered a light appearing in my room, which continued to increase until the room was lighter than at noonday. That phrase, continued to increase, doesn't that sound like an apt description of eternal progression? Or as section 50 will say later on, that the light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. That's what's happening here. Lighter than at noonday. Can you picture the glory of a resurrected being outshining anything we see in this life? Or when he says that immediately a personage appeared at my bedside, standing in the air, for his feet did not touch the ground. Can you imagine rising above to no longer be earthbound? No more feet of clay. It's one thing for the Savior to wash our feet of the evidence of our earthly existence. It's another thing for him to lift us above it so that our feet are never filthy again. In verse 31, he had on a loose robe of most exquisite whiteness, a whiteness beyond anything earthly I had ever seen. I don't believe that any earthly thing could be made to appear so exceedingly white and brilliant. Remind you of the description of the fruit of the tree of life? This is eternal life, far superior to anything that mortal life can offer. His hands were naked, and his arms also a little above the wrist. Sound like clean hands, nothing to hide, no dirt under our fingernails anymore. So also were his feet naked, as were his legs a little above the ankles. Remind you of Moses at the burning bush, removing his shoes because he was on holy ground. Well, this is even better than holy ground. It's above the ground at all. His head and neck were also bare. Nothing blocking or getting between him and heaven. I could discover that he had no other clothing on but his robe, what the scriptures describe as the robes of righteousness, as it was open so that I could see into his bosom. The naked hands, the open bosom, sound like clean hands and a pure heart, where God can fully see how we feel, what we do, where our thoughts are. Holiness to the Lord. If this is any indication of what the resurrection entails, then we have so much good to look forward to beyond the doors of death. Not only was his robe exceedingly white, but his whole person was glorious beyond description and his countenance truly like lightning. Glorious beyond description? That's the way Joseph described the Father and the Son in the first vision. And countenance truly like lightning. That's how Daniel described the Lord as he saw him in a vision. You see what the resurrection is doing? It's making us more and more like Jesus. More like the Father and the Son. That's what the purpose of eternal progression is from the beginning. The room was exceedingly light, but not so very bright as immediately around his person. When I first looked upon him, I was afraid. But the fear soon left me. It's amazing how often whenever an angel comes to appear to someone, his first words are, fear not. Our initial reaction is wrong. They come with good tidings of great joy. Nothing to fear. Now in verse 33, no longer describing him, this man now begins to describe his mission. He called me by name, just as the father had three years earlier. And said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me, that his name was Moroni, that God had a work for me to do, and that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues, or that it should be both good and evil spoken of among all people. Now, I don't think Joseph could have had any idea just how prophetic those words would prove to be. His name is had for good and evil practically everywhere. He is such a polarizing figure because of the claims that he made. There's not a lot of middle ground. But honestly, I think the part that Joseph himself would have been more focused on in verse 33 was the fact that God had a work for him to do. Finally, something to do instead of something not to do. He had been forbidden to do anything three years ago. Don't join any other church. Now he is being bidden to do something, engaging God's work. Verse 34, here's what the work entails. There was a book deposited, written upon gold plates, giving an account of the former inhabitants of this continent. That was something that was fascinating to a lot of people in Joseph Smith's day. Where did the Native Americans come from? The verse goes on, also the source from whence they sprang. And what was that source? The house of Israel, that this was a remnant, a branch broken off. Israel had been scattered, and now what would Joseph's mission be entail? The gathering of scattered Israel. He also said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it, as delivered by the Savior to the ancient inhabitants. It's amazing that that comes across almost by way of passing. Oh, it has the fullness of the gospel, because that's what Jesus taught when he came here. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, 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 Je- Jesus came here? Oh, yeah. Reminds me sometimes on my mission, we'd be teaching an interested family and we'd go to talk to their neighbors. And if the neighbors weren't interested, I'd say, oh, that, that's okay. That's totally fine. It's just when we met your, your neighbor, when we told them that Jesus had come here to the Americas, they hadn't even heard of that. They had no idea that the Savior had come here. Isn't that amazing? Your own neighbors. And it was like, wait, huh? What? I, I'd never heard that either. Oh, well, you might be interested in this message as well. That wise as serpents and harmless as doves, right? Verse 35 then continues, also that there were two stones and silver bows, and these stones fastened to a breastplate constituted what is called the Urim and Thummim, deposited with the plates. And the possession and use of these stones was what constituted seers in ancient or former times, and that God had prepared them for the purpose of translating the book. So you have the source in 34, the means of accessing it in 35, Remember, that was one of the concerns of the mortal Moroni. When, he, when it kind of dawns on him, oh wait, we've been using Reformed Egyptian. How on earth is anybody going to understand this? And there's the reassurance. The Lord has prepared means whereby they can be translated. Same with the brother of Jared. Write a record, and I will provide a means whereby other people can understand it. And we see the various titles that they were given. Urim and Thummim, as well as Stones, which constituted Seers. In other words, Seer Stones. And Joseph, at various times in the translation, used both. Sometimes the the Urim and Thummim that he found deposited with the plates, and sometimes with a seer stone that he had found on his own, that he was a little more comfortable with. This was a day where people believed in seer stones and divining rods, a certain degree of folk magic. Again, this is a period where contraries are being proven. Between enlightenment rationality, we'll see that with Martin Harris and Charles Anthon, and a belief, a more primitive belief, that with the help of sacred objects, things could be made known that could not be known otherwise. Like divining rods to help find water sources, or seer stones to be able to see things that were invisible to the naked eye. It's only modernity that is scandalized by these kinds of possibilities. It was common practice in Old Testament and New Testament times. Again, like Jesus spitting in the clay. It was neither the clay nor the spit nor the water from Siloam that gave sight to the blind. But to give almost a crutch of sorts, a set of training wheels, something to focus your faith on. Urim and Thummim, seer stones, divining rods, just something to help see something is happening. We use consecrated oil. The brother Jared used 16 stones. We partake of bread and water. There are so many things that help us focus our faith, and that was something that would help focus the faith of Joseph Smith. Again, common throughout early Christian history, through Puritan time period, up until and a little beyond the time of Joseph Smith. In some ways, Joseph Smith had to have just enough faith in the impossible to attempt a translation from an unknown language at all. I've always loved the insignia of Yale University. If you can read the Hebrew, it says, Urim Vatumim, Urim and Thummim. It's on Yale's insignia. In Hebrew, it means lights and perfections. It's the way the ancient high priest in the days of Moses and Aaron would access the truths of God, knowledge that goes beyond the mere mortal. And that's what the founders of Yale were hoping for. How do we help our students access truth, divine truth. They will need their own version of a Urim and Thummim. Joseph was given one as well. Now in verse 36, Moroni's message becomes very interesting, because it becomes intensely scriptural. Verse 36, after telling me these things, he commenced quoting the prophecies of the Old Testament. He first quoted part of the third chapter of Malachi, And he quoted also the fourth or last chapter of the same prophecy, though with a little variation from the way it reads in our Bibles. Now that's impressive that a 17-year-old, rubbing the sleep out of his eyes in bed, would recognize, Wait, you seem to be quoting Malachi chapter 4, but that's not exactly the way I remember it from the King James Version. Now, who knows if he recognized it at the time or it was simply that he had this verse that Moroni's version of it so drilled into his head that when he went back and studied it in the Old Testament, he realized that's not quite the way we have it in our own. But before we get to Malachi 4, we need to spend some time with Malachi 3. Again, imagine that you're in that attic bedroom. And Moroni is trying to teach you about your mission. Yes, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, but there's so much more to that. The book, as we saw last year, is the means, not the end. So what is the end and objective of your calling, Joseph? I'm trying to explain that to you with the help of these Old Testament prophets. Now, this is interesting that he would quote Malachi 3 and 4 at all. Remember last year, 3 Nephi? 24 and 25, when Jesus comes to the Nephites and quotes to them Malachi 3 and 4 in their entirety, these are words that he wanted that remnant of the house of Israel to know as well. So read through Malachi 3 with an eye to the kinds of things that may have applied to Joseph's mission, may have prepared him for it. For example, the first verse of Malachi 3, behold, I will send my messenger That's actually a play on words, since Malachi, translated into English, is my messenger. But that messenger shall prepare the way before me. So think of something preparing the way before Jesus Christ. Restoration is meant to prepare the world for his second coming. The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. So now we're talking temples. This is a temple text. We're talking about covenant. How is God going to keep his promises? The Lord will come suddenly. We'll see that happen when Joseph builds and dedicates the Kirtland Temple. And that is still 13 years away. It's amazing how much of this has a long shelf life in Joseph's memory. And only later in life would it start making sense to him. Scripture study is often that way. Our patriarchal blessing is often that way. In fact, in some ways, these verses that Moroni is sharing is almost a scriptural patriarchal blessing for Joseph Smith. I've often felt that the messianic prophecies in Isaiah, for example, were Jesus' patriarchal blessing of sorts, and that when he read them, he knew they were referring to him and would have opened his eye to see the mission that he he had come to perform. Well, in a similar way, as Joseph is understanding Malachi 3 and 4, this is a role that i'm supposed to play one among those messengers that goes before the face of the lord to prepare the way for him or what about 2 verses later malachi 3 verse 3 he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he shall purify the sons of levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the lord an offering in righteousness now joseph's going to talk about the sons of levi in the revelation he receives in section 84. He's going to talk about them being purified in order to offer an offering in righteousness far, far away in section 128. That's 19 years later. It's amazing how long it takes sometimes for things to click or to come clear and make sense to us. That's what he meant by that. These are things that have been weighing on Joseph in his mind and heart for nearly two decades before it's starting to completely crystallize specifically with the redemption of the dead. Again, gathering on that side of the veil. How about this verse from Malachi 3, verse 7? When Malachi warns that the people had gone away from the Lord's ordinances. Sound a little like what Joseph learned in section 1 that we studied two weeks ago? They have strayed from mine ordinances. Or how about Malachi 3, verse 16? Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. That's similar to the offering in righteousness that Joseph explains in section 128. A record of our dead, worthy of all acceptation. Now, there may have been more from Malachi 3 that that related or that Moroni was focused on, but at least those verses that we just talked about aim almost directly to the kind of mission that Joseph Smith would perform in restoring the gospel and church of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 37, we now shift to to Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall burn as stubble. For they that come shall burn them, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Now there's the first verse of Malachi 4. And as Joseph recognized, it's a little bit different than what we see in the King James Version specifically the king james simply says that the wicked shall be as stubble here it they shall burn as stubble which makes it all the more clear that we are talking about harvest time and then preparing the field for whatever its future might hold you get a sense of this right after the allegory of the olive tree in jacob 5. read jacob 6 and you see what happens after the harvest the field is burned that's why they call it stubble after you've, you've harvested the grain and you look down across the field, and it's like the stubble on your chin that my 18-year-old son is so proud to claim now. So you have the, the, whatever's left after the harvest, but you don't leave it that way. You then burn the field. We'll actually see that later in the Doctrine and Covenants. Next week when we study section 4, the field is white already to harvest. We'll fast forward to I think section 30 or so, and it's the field is white already to be burned. The harvest is past. It's now time to clear the field and get it ready for whatever its future might hold, when the earth is cleansed and receives its paradisiacal glory, as we read in the 10th article of faith. That verse, by the way, is about the gathering of Israel as well, and about the coming of Christ to usher in this millennial reign. Amazing how all these things focus on the restoration, which was Joseph's mission. It's so much more than simply get this Book of Golden Plates and translate it. That's the means. This, the gathering of Israel, the keeping of God's covenant by sending this messenger and preparing for the sudden coming of the Lord, that's really what this is all about. That's the ultimate end that the Book of Mormon is aiming for. I hope you got that sense last year as we studied it. The scattering and gathering of Israel was the underlying message of that book through Jesus Christ and his restored church and gospel. The other phrase that's different from this first verse of Malachi 4, in the King James, it simply says that the day that comes shall burn them up. Whereas in Moroni's version, it's much more personal because it says that they that come shall burn them. So it leaves them neither root nor branch. It seems to be more of a personal cleansing rather than just a day of destruction. Now, the book of Revelation helps explain some of this as it talks about these destroying angels pouring out fire upon the earth. Even Jude talks about this near the end of the New Testament. Bruce R. McConkie described it this way in the Millennial Messiah. Jude and Enoch, though separated by 3,000 years, unite their voices in... T- Of the glory and judgment that will attend the second coming. So, all this, again, second coming focused. In speaking of the condemnation that will befall ungodly men in that great day, Jude says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. As as Elder McConkie explains, The ten thousands of his saints are the holy angels. They are the righteous of ages past who are already resurrected, like Moroni had been. They shall attend their Lord and shall, by assignment from him, execute judgment. They are the ones of whom Malachi wrote, They that come shall burn them, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. The day of judgment, the day of burning, ten thousands of judges. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? Paul asked. How majestic and awesome shall this day be. Now even with Elder McConkie's beautiful explanation of that passage, Sometimes this this sense of they that come shall burn them sounds a little too harsh or vindictive in, in modern ears. And honestly, it makes me wonder, the coming of the Lord and his resurrected saints, is that a burning that is violent and vindictive or is it a burning that is simply natural and inescapable? Or another way to put this, is this burning by condemnation or simply burning by contact? It's like one of the other accounts of the first vision when Joseph describes the glory and brilliance of the Father and the Son to the point that he honestly worried that the leaves on the trees in the grove would catch fire. Would God be burning them in anger? No. Simply his presence. Our God dwelleth in everlasting burnings, Joseph said. The celestial glory is the glory of the Son, this all-consuming, cleansing, purifying fire. Again, using Jude's words about Enoch, if Zion, a celestialized Zion from above, descends to meet a celestializing Zion from below, that celestial glory, that cleansing fire, this doesn't have to be angry or vindictive. It's simply to abide the presence of God, we must become like him. We must be transfigured. And that's what the earth is aiming for. Again, back to the book of Revelation. As it starts to describe all of these things, it asks that all-important question. Who shall be able to stand? And back to Malachi 3, this time verse 2, he asks the same kind of question. Who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. That fire is meant to cleanse and purify and prepare, not simply to purge and destroy. Ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego what the fire is supposed to do when the Lord himself is in it with you. Now, even bigger and more beautiful differences come at the end of Malachi 4. Moroni quotes it in verse 38. He quoted the fifth verse thus... And he'll quote it in 38 and 39. And this word for word is what we see in Doctrine and Covenants section two. The first chronological revelation of this dispensation that we have canonized in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's amazing that that passage is in the Bible end of the Old Testament. It's in the Book of Mormon, when Jesus quotes it to the Nephites. It's in the Doctrine and Covenants, Doctrine and Covenants section 2. And it's in the Pearl of Great Price, here in Joseph Smith history. There is something powerful about this passage, to the point that it needed to be preserved in all four of the standard works. Here's how Moroni says it, and I'll let you know how it's different from the Malachi version. Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood, by the hand of Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. In the King James Version, it simply says, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So in the Malachi Version, it's simply, I'm going to send Elijah. But we don't know why. Ever since that period, the Jews at Passover have set set an extra plate for Elijah. There is a seat of Elijah in the synagogue, the fanciest place to sit. There is this expectation on the part of Judaism of Elijah's promised return. Again, the Hebrew Bible organizes the books in a different order. But the way that we see it in our Old Testament, with Malachi 4 at the very end. You ever watch the movie that you know is being set up for a sequel? Like every Avengers ever, right? But to see the way that old, our Old Testament ends, it is so, oh, to be continued, dun, dun, dun that Elijah will return. God is going to send him. And then, boom, the end, period. The end of the prophets. And the book's over. And you're just wondering, when's this going to happen? Well, the, the restoration is the answer to that. Just like we saw at the end of last year, the Book of Mormon ends with Moroni. And the Doctrine and Covenants begins with Moroni. He is passing the baton to himself, basically, over the passage of 14 centuries. Well, in a similar way, the Old Testament ends with Malachi. This dispensation begins with Malachi. The promise that Elijah would return. But, but again, the beauty of this, the way Moroni gives this verse, is that he's not just coming. He's coming to reveal priesthood. And that's exactly what he did in the Kirtland Temple in 1836. and This is a preview of coming attractions 13 years in advance. What priesthood would Elijah restore? The keys of the sealing power. That what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That Joseph would have the keys of the kingdom, just like Jesus gave to Peter. That what you do here, I will honor there. No wonder in the temple, where that sealing power is held by sealers. They don't have to use the phrase, till death do you part. That is the world's admission, unavoidable admission, that we have no control over what happens in heaven. We can pronounce you, man and wife, here. We can bind you here. But we have no authority to keep you bound beyond this life, but not in a sealing ceremony. Not by the sealing power of the priesthood that Elijah restored. Sealers can stare death in the face and say, You have no power over this couple. They have been bound on earth and they will be bound in heaven, uniting, binding the human family eternally. This is part of the mission of that messenger who comes before the coming Christ. The difference continues in the next verse, verse 39. The King James Version simply says that he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. But that explains neither the how nor the why of this turning of hearts. Moroni's Version, on the other hand, he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers. And then the other phrase. And the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. This seems to be cause and effect. Why are they going to turn? How is that turning going to be facilitated? Something about planting promises. Once the promises are planted, then the hearts begin to turn. It's almost like sunflower seeds. You plant those and what grows will turn to face the sun. Wherever the light might be shining. These hearts that will grow up in God will also turn to sources of light and strength, but only if promises are planted in them. So you can, you can really summarize the differences between the Malachi version and the Moroni version with three Ps. Priesthood, plant, and promise. Now look at the verse more closely to see what kinds of promises are being planted. It says the promises made to thee fathers. And then it says that the hearts of the children will turn to their fathers. Now, is there significance in the difference between the fathers and their fathers? I think so. If we were to ask, who are the fathers, who might that be? Well, another way to say fathers is patriarch, pater in in Latin, that's father, okay? And so if we were to think of the fathers, the patriarchs, we would think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, if you were to read the first few verses of Abraham chapter 1 in the Prodigate Price, there's a beautiful distinction between the fathers and my fathers, as Abraham says. For Abraham, he says, I want the blessings God promised to the fathers, since my fathers have turned away from God and followed false gods. That should reassure any of us for whom the blessings of a righteous parentage was not yours in this life regardless of the righteousness or wickedness of your fathers, the fathers are always there to be claimed by you, along with their blessings, their promises. For Abraham, the fathers would have been people like Adam, Seth, Enoch. And for us, who are the fathers? The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When the temples reopen and you can do sealing ordinances again, Keep an ear out for the promises God makes to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Study your scriptures, Old Testament, to find the promises God makes to the fathers. With the restoration of priesthood power, those patriarchal promises can be planted in your hearts. I am an heir of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises made to them can be fulfilled in my life. In fact, if you were to study closely in the Old Testament, God makes that covenant, covenant, we call it the Abrahamic covenant after all. He makes that covenant, that two-way promise with Abraham. And then fast forward, and God renews the covenant directly to Isaac. And when he does that, he doesn't just say, well, Isaac, you're Abraham's boy, and so I guess it just passes down. It's like, no, no, no. It was me and your dad before. Now it's me and you. I'm, re- I'm renewing this covenant directly with you. Fast forward another generation. He does the same thing with Jacob slash Israel. New name, right? And it says, not just because you're part of the family tree, independent of those others, I now confirm and renew that covenant upon you, Jacob. You, Israel. Now, if you think about it, do we ever get a chance to have the Abrahamic covenant renewed upon us? We see the three Ps here of priesthood, planting promises. Well, there are three Ps of the Abrahamic covenant as well. Posterity, children, seed like the stars of heaven and the sands of the seashore. And again, in the Abraham account, it's in the desert at night when God tells him that. Beautiful visual aid. God is the ultimate uh, teacher. He set up the classroom with his visuals in advance. Here in the desert, sand everywhere. At night, seeing the Milky Way spread out above you, that's your posterity. I always used to joke that as a kid growing up in L.A., if Abraham had grown up in L.A. like I did, and God said, you'll have seed like the stars of heaven, he would be like, whoa, six kids. That's amazing. No. But desert at night, posterity is the great blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. Innumerable seed. Second P, promised land. Climb this mountain in Israel and look north, south, east, and west. And it's all for you and for your posterity to the last day. Abraham's posterity, Ishmael versus Isaac, are still fighting over that second P promise to this day. And the third and perhaps most important P is priesthood and all the blessings that go with it. That's best described in the Abraham chapter 2 account. And so what is God promising? The Fathers. Posterity. Promised land. Priesthood. And just like he wants to renew it directly upon the descendants of those fathers, he wants to renew it directly upon you and me. What does he do it? It's our temple sealing. It's when the sealing power is used to bind us as husband and wife, as eternal families, because then and only then, what is the, what are the three Ps again? Posterity. Only when you are sealed can you receive the promise of eternal increase. Posterity, like the stars in the sand. Secondly, only when you are sealed do you have access to the ultimate promised land, the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. And third. Only when you are sealed do you enter into the highest order of the priesthood, that new and everlasting covenant, that patriarchal priesthood, shared by husband and wife in reflection of our heavenly parents. You see what the sealing ordinance is? We are having the Abrahamic covenant renewed upon us directly, not just because we're his seed. But now it's us and God in a direct covenant relationship. God has planted in my heart the promises made to the fathers. And when that happens, how can my heart not turn naturally, unavoidably, to my fathers, anyone in my family tree, that never had the opportunity to receive those blessings confirmed upon them directly. You see how the fathers and their fathers come together? I want the blessings he gave to them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to come to me. And once they do, I start thinking about my father and my grandfather, my grandmother, my great-grandmother. I look at my descendants. There's the posterity side. But I also look at my ancestors, or as Malachi said earlier in that chapter, I look at both my branches, what will come out of me, as well as my roots, what I came out of. Now do you understand the symbolism behind that warning of the burning at the beginning of Malachi 4? That it will leave them neither root nor branch in the context of what we see at the end of the chapter. What kind of a tree is he talking about? hearts of fathers and children turning to one another. This is a family tree. And without the sealing power, then when death comes to part you, you are parted from your roots. You are parted from your branches. You are a single and solitary log. And that is so powerfully depicted at the end of Malachi 4, where he says in the King James Version, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse, but so much more powerfully in the Moroni version, that if it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. Now, is that the same thing? It's smitten with a curse. It's utterly wasted. Well, the language of Moroni's version is so powerful. Because what is the earth for? One way to summarize its purpose is to give us a place to create eternal families. In section 49 of the Doctrine and Covenants, when it talks about marriage being ordained of God, it also says this, and all this that the earth might answer the end of its creation. Fascinating. Marriage, eternal marriage, is one of the ends of the earth's creation. And if that doesn't happen, if the earth ends up a logging camp, instead of a forest of family trees, interconnected roots and branches growing together into one divine tree of life, then what an utter waste of the earth. You get that sense behind Moroni's language? The earth will be utterly wasted Again, this is less condemnation and more natural consequence, just like we saw in the burning of the earth. You are in the presence of the burning ones, saints of God, with hearts aflame, with love of God and love of neighbor, namely, love of one eternal divine family. That is what Joseph Smith was called to accomplish. And he would work on that, Up until his dying day, turning hearts upward and outward, connecting parents and children, connecting the family of humanity, purging the sons and daughters of Levi so that we could offer that gift, an offering of righteousness unto the Lord. Now, as a sleepy 17-year-old kid in the attic bedroom, all of this would have gone so far over Joseph Smith's head. That's why I love to just watch as the restoration unfolds through the Doctrine and Covenants. A line here and a line there. Precept and precept. Hint and hint. As it begins to make sense, that's what Moroni was telling me so long ago. Moroni then shifts from Malachi to Isaiah. In verse 40, he quotes the 11th chapter of Isaiah. And he says it was about to be fulfilled. Now again, if we really want to do our homework, we now need to go back to Isaiah chapter 11 and see what is it that Moroni is teaching him. What verses seem to be most applicable to the mission that Joseph Smith was called to perform. Now this chapter also has a long shelf life in Joseph Smith's memory. When we get to section 113 of the Doctrine and Covenants, it's a fascinating section, it's Q&A with the Lord. And what is Joseph asking questions about? The book of Isaiah. And guess which chapter is on his mind? Chapter 11. The end of section 113 has some questions from Isaiah 52, but those are from another member of the church, Elias Higby. The questions Joseph had were from the chapter that Moroni quoted to him. 14 and a half years later, he's still chewing on this stuff. His specific questions: Who is the stem of Jesse? And who is the rod that would come out of that stem? And who is the root of Jesse? All mentioned in that chapter. Now, for this, you need to understand a little bit about olive trees. Again, Jacob 5 can be a, a help to that. But what happens in, in, with olive trees is, even if the, if the tree itself seems to be dying, new shoots, or we could call them rods, can come out of that trunk, or we could call it a stem. Now, try to put this all together. If we go back to Isaiah 11, the first verse says this. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, a new shoot coming out of the trunk, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, as Joseph is asking the Lord these questions in section 113, who's the stem, who's the trunk of Jesse? And the Lord answers it clearly. That is Jesus Christ. That is the core of the tree right? Those are the roots. This is the tree itself. That is Jesus. But unfortunately, over the centuries of apostasy, people have allowed New Testament Christianity to wither to the point that new life is needed. And so a rod would have to come out of that stem. And the section 113 describes who that rod is. It does it beautifully, but without naming names. As you read those verses, though, it seems to point directly to Joseph Smith, which, again, is one of the reasons Moroni would quote this chapter. Joseph Smith and his mission would grow out of Jesus Christ and his restored Christianity, would grow out of what remained of New Testament Christianity. Why? As Jacob 5 tells us, so the Lord could preserve good Fruit. He wants to save every tree. That's why he's digging and dunging and pruning and nourishing and, and scattering and gathering and grafting everything else. It's so that new branches, new life can grow out of this. There's so much more in Isaiah chapter 11. Read it yourself, verse by verse. Slow down as you get to verses 6 through 8, as it speaks of millennial peace, right? The coming of Christ the paradisical glory, as Isaiah puts it, the wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the kid, the calf and the young lion will all lie down together. Now, did you notice something interesting about the way he described those animals? In every pair, at least one of them is young. He didn't say the wolf and the sheep. He said the wolf and the lamb. He didn't say the leopard and the goat. He said the leopard and the kid. He talked about the calf and the young lion. And then he said, to make it more obvious, and a little child shall lead them. When will peace come? When children learn to love instead of hate? When the world becomes more childlike, for such is the kingdom of heaven? Who is Moroni speaking to? A boy of seventeen And what will become of the earth when little children lead us to be like them? Verse 9 of Isaiah 11. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Think holy mountain, the mountain of the Lord. Remember Malachi's verse? The Lord shall suddenly come to his temple. Well, Isaiah is giving us temple imagery as well. My holy mountain. There's the temple work side, the gathering of Israel on the other side of the veil. And then he goes on, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Now, I've never seen any part of the sea that isn't covered with water. If there's no water there, it's no longer sea. And so, beautiful imagery on Isaiah's part. The knowledge of the of the Lord is going to be everywhere. And how does that take place? Missionary work. Gathering Israel on this side of the veil. See, in that beautiful passage in Isaiah 11, verse 9, You have temple work for the other side and you have missionary work for this side. The gathering of Israel so that God can keep his covenant with Abraham in thee and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. See, family focused even then. All of this coming together because of the mission of this young man turning hearts, gathering Israel. In the next verse, Isaiah 11 verse 10. It speaks of the root of Jesse, which again most likely points to Joseph Smith and all that he represents in the restoration. It will stand for an ensign. To it shall the Gentiles seek. The restoration, the restored church of Jesus Christ, would be this banner high on the mountaintop, temple. This banner is unfurled, this ensign, and the Gentiles would seek to it. And what's the Gentile role in coming in? to find the gospel themselves in order to then gather Israel that they had helped scatter. We saw that so often last year throughout the Book of Mormon, especially in 3 Nephi when Jesus was speaking. Next verse, Isaiah 11:12, 12. He shall set up an ensign for the nations. There's that same imagery. And shall assemble the outcasts of Israel. Getting a sense of gathering yet? Well, if not, it's obvious in the next phrase. And gather together the dispersed of Judah, from the four corners of the earth, that would be the mission of the restoration that Joseph Smith would usher in, to gather all of God's dispersed children. We have to be better with the marginalized, with people who feel like they are on the outside of things. They are the ones to whom we are specifically called to serve. We have to be more welcoming if we ever hope to be more gathering. At the end of that chapter, Isaiah 11, verse 16, he speaks of a highway being built for the remnant of his people. If you've ever been stuck in traffic and been forced onto surface streets, you begin to recognize the genius and blessing that is a highway. Something with no stop signs and no traffic lights. You're just supposed to be able to go. And so to build a highway for the remnant, anytime you hear the word remnant, that's scattered Israel now being gathered, and it's highway gathering. Can you hear that beautiful tenor of Handel's Messiah? Again from Isaiah, just a few chapters later, chapter 40. The voice of him crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Sound like the messenger Malachi talked about, preparing the way for the Lord to come suddenly to his temple? where sealing power can allow all hearts to turn to one another and receive the covenant relationship that was promised to the fathers first? What else is that voice crying? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. How? Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. When he speaks of valleys being exalted and mountains being made low and crooked places being made straight and rough places plain that's just highway construction we're ready to run we are ready to gather israel that is the mission that joseph is being given from the old testament moroni went to the new specifically to acts third chapter 22nd and 23rd verses And he quotes them precisely as they stand in our New Testament. Now in that passage, Peter is talking about Moses and says that Moses prophesied that God would raise up a prophet like himself, like Moses, and that those who refused to hear him would be destroyed. And then Moroni explained that that prophet, the one that was like Moses, was Christ. So he's not talking about Joseph here. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses. Beautiful parallels between the two. Moses leaving his throne in Egypt to come down to the level of the slave. Condescension of Christ. And then bringing those slaves out of bondage into the promised land. Beautiful Christ imagery there. But as Moroni explains, you get this sense of anticipation on his part. All of these prophecies about to be fulfilled because you, Joseph, are about to fulfill this mission. By the way, one other fascinating thing about that passage from Acts chapter 3. He quoted verse 22 and 23. But if you go back and see the verses that lead up to those verses, what are they talking about? Acts three nineteen to 21. It's where Peter prophesies of the times of refreshing that will come. Or as he says in the later verse, the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began for Moses truly said. So the the passage that Moroni quotes is right on the heels of this prophecy of restitution, refreshing, what we call restoration. It's interesting he would speak of Jesus in that context, instead of simply speaking directly of Joseph Smith. That Joseph's role was to allow Jesus Christ to speak to his people again. The restoration is not about Joseph, just like the Book of Mormon is not about the Book of Mormon. Both Joseph and the Book of Mormon are means to the greater end, and the end is Jesus Christ. Now, after that quick field trip to the New Testament, Moroni takes Joseph back to the Old, this time the Book of Joel. Verse 41, he says, he quoted the second chapter of Joel from the 28th verse to the last. And again, he says, this was not yet fulfilled, but was soon to be. You almost sense all of these Old Testament, New Testament prophets chomping at the bit. When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? As Jesus said to his apostles in his day, many prophets and, and righteous men have longed to see the things that you see and have not seen them. That is even more true of this final dispensation. So many ancient prophets putting their eggs in the restorations basket. That's when all things will be brought into one in Christ. The dispensation of the fullness of times. And that's what Joel is looking forward to as well. If you go to Joel chapter 2, listen to this from verse 28. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Sound a little like section 1, verse 20. That every man might speak in the name of God. God's spirit poured out upon all. Joel continues, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. That prophecy was so perfectly fulfilled in Joseph Smith's own family. His father, Joseph Smith Sr., an old man who dreamed dreams. One of which gave him a sense of the apostate condition of the Christianity of his day. And another dream that was very similar to the vision of the tree of life that Lehi had. And if that old man, Joseph Smith Sr., is dreaming dreams, then that young man, Joseph Smith Jr., is seeing visions. And again, it's not just them. The Spirit will be poured out upon all flesh. Remember Moses' great plea, would that all of God's people were prophets and had the Spirit of the Lord upon them. And notice, so important, that it's not just upon the sons that it will be poured out, but the sons and daughters shall prophesy. Prophecy is a spiritual gift. The testimony of Jesus, John calls it in the book of Revelation, and that is not priesthood specific as far as ordination is concerned. God's daughters can be prophetesses, just as much as God's sons can be prophets. He reiterates that in the next verse in Joel, chapter 2, verse 29. Upon the servants, that suggests the men, and upon the handmaids, that suggests the women. In those days will I pour out my spirit. Now the next two verses in Joel speak of the wonders in heaven and in earth, blood and fire and smoke, the sun turned to darkness, the moon turned to blood, all part of the great and terrible day of the Lord. These are the signs of the times that anticipate the second coming of Jesus Christ. Everything we've read so far is anticipating that event. Remember the thesis statement of the Doctrine and Covenants we studied two times ago. Section 1, verse 12. Prepare ye, prepare ye for that which is to come, for the Lord is nigh. These are the latter days. And Joseph, you will restore the church of Jesus Christ of latter-day saints you'll prepare the earth for the second coming. You will help humanity navigate the wars and rumors of wars. You'll help them recognize the fulfillment of those signs of the times. You'll help them know that the Lord is nigh. Joel chapter 2 then ends with verse 32 saying this, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Sound a little like the first vision? For in Mount Zion, there's mountain of the Lord. There's temple imagery again. And in Jerusalem, these two headquarters, old Jerusalem and new Jerusalem, Zion of the old world, Zion of the new, in them shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said. And in this interesting phrase, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Remember, remnant always refers to gathered Israel. The Lamanites were a remnant of the house of Israel, right? The broken branch, the the part of the family cut off. Well, deliverance is not only in Mount Zion and Jerusalem, but deliverance is to be found in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Gathered Israel brings us deliverance. We find our deliverance in participating in the gathering of Israel. So it brings the Gentiles into the kingdom of God to begin with. They helped in the scattering of Israel. But then once the gospel goes to them, they will then assist in the gathering of Israel. If you notice in verse 41, right after Moroni quotes the end of Joel, he then says also that the fullness of the Gentiles was soon to come in. We talked about this last year in the Book of Mormon study around the time of Samuel the Lamanite. That Nephite civilization had kind of reached its apex and then was on the decline as the Lamanites were beginning to blossom as the rose. And we use that as kind of parallel tracks, preview of coming attractions, that the age of the Gentiles would be fulfilled and that then Israel would return. The first should be last and the last should be first. It's exactly what Moroni is describing here. And then this teaser, and it kills me. The end of verse 41, it says that Moroni quoted many other passages of scripture and offered many explanations, which cannot be mentioned here. Ah, Joseph, you're on a roll. Give it all to us. You want to talk about some powerful scripture study. I would sign up for Moroni's Institute class any day, especially if it meant staying after class and hearing about the other passages and other explanations. Now, I doubt we'll ever identify all the passages of scripture that Moroni identified that night. But pay attention to the theme that we've seen develop. It seems that the threads that bind together all of these passages of Scripture, Malachi 3, Malachi 4, Isaiah 11, Acts 3, Joel 2, have to do with things like gathering Israel, sending messengers to prepare the way before the coming of Christ, the temple and the work that takes place there, covenants between God and humanity, hearts turning, the word being shared. Sound like the purpose of the Restoration? This is Joseph's mission. God has a work for you to do. Translating the golden plates is a drop in the bucket. And I don't say that to minimize the importance of our keystone scripture. I'm simply saying that the work that Moroni was laying out for Joseph that night went so far beyond the hill Cumorah. It went to the mountain of the Lord. Now after this journey through Old and New Testament, he comes back to the book he started with the Book of Mormon, and says in verse 42, that when I got those plates of which he had spoken, for the time that they should be obtained was not yet fulfilled. So even with that, there's a sense of coming anticipation, like with all these other prophecies that he's mentioned. I should not show them to any person, neither the breastplate with the Urim and Thummim, only to those to whom I should be commanded to show them. Joseph Smith learns over and over, including the hard way, that the Book of Mormon belongs to God and not to him, that he is able to translate it or not and share it or not only at the command of God. And this first visit of Moroni ends with a vision opening up to Joseph's mind of the place where the plates were deposited, so clear and distinct that he knew exactly where it was when he saw it again the next day. Verse 43 then says that after this communication, I saw the light in the room begin to gather immediately around the person of whom had been speaking to me. It continued to do so until the room was again left dark, except just around him. This is a different kind of light. Light that can be gathered or spread. And once it gathered to the angel Moroni, he said, I instantly saw as it were a conduit open right up into heaven. And he ascended till he entirely disappeared. And the room was left as it had been before this heavenly light had made its appearance. I do like the words, as it were. Again, you see this ineffability of heavenly visions and spiritual experiences. What is happening here? It's as if, or as it were, this conduit and he was gone. I also love that it says, the room was left as it had been before, but the same could not be said of Joseph Smith. He was nothing like he had been when he went to bed that night. In fact, he wasn't content just to roll over and go back to bed. And that made all the difference. Notice the words in verse 44. Three M words. I lay musing on the singularity of the scene and marveling greatly at what had been told to me by this extraordinary messenger. When in the midst of my meditation... Now notice what he's doing. We're about to see the second visit of Moroni unfold. But what you saw in the first half of verse 44 is, in my opinion, what instigated that second visit. I sometimes picture Moroni kind of turning off the light in himself and kind of hovering outside the window and looking in to see, what's he doing? Did he just roll back over? Ah, Forget it. He's not that interested. But when he sees him muse and marvel and meditate, he's ready for more. And Moroni comes right back. Elder Richard G. Scott once taught that in his opinion, we leave some of the most important revelation on the table, so to speak, because we don't write it down. We don't show God how much we treasure these things. I had a religion professor years ago when I was an undergrad at school who said, the more you are willing to write, the more God is willing to reveal. And I took him at his word and found that it was true if I have a pen in hand, if I'm ready to type out a note, if I'm ready to write something in Scripture, the heavens open, the insight comes. I simply have to prove to God that I'm not a swine. And then the pearls will be forthcoming. You see what Joseph is doing with what he's received? The next time you have a spiritual experience, the next time you're studying Scripture, the next time you're able to go to the temple, do a little more musing and marveling and meditating. Notice, by the way, those are more mental and emotional verbs. He doesn't seem to be physically, actively doing anything. But what's happening in mind and heart, those two focal points of revelation, as we saw last time, is showing to God how much he values the message that Moroni had just given him. I have learned throughout my life that we typically end the class before the professor does, God is so eager to share more with us. And as soon as he sees that we are done learning, then unfortunately by default, he's done teaching. And he could have taught us so much more. It is based on Joseph's response and reaction to the first visit that Moroni returns for a second. One of my favorite places to see this is at the beginning of Exodus, in the story of the burning bush. Moses could have had just the burning bush experience and ended it with that. In fact, to me it's funny that we call it the burning bush because that's that's almost beside the point. The real miracle is that the Lord spoke to Moses out of the midst of that bush. But I don't think he would have if Moses hadn't focused, stopped what else he was doing, and done a little musing and marveling and meditating. According to the Exodus version, it says that when Moses saw this bush that was burning and not consumed, He turned aside to see. I love that phrase. In fact, it's repeated in the next verse. And when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, he spake unto him out of the midst of that burning bush. You see what triggered it for him? It's almost like the burning bush was just to get Moses' attention, to see something out of the ordinary, and then hopefully for him to stop, pay it heed, turn aside to see, and with Moses' full attention, the Lord could then address him. I think too often we are content with bushes that burn when we could have had bushes that speak. We feel something at church or in our scripture study. And unfortunately, we don't turn aside to see. We think that was it. We're so excited we felt something that then we rush forward to the rest of our day. Instead of stopping and recognizing God were you trying to get my attention? Is there something more here you want me to learn? And as you ponder the experience you've had or the things that you're studying, then the additional insight can come. When I first started this channel, one of my institute students, Kylie, an amazing young woman, said to me, I love the fact that I can pause these lessons now. In class, in person, we could never do that. We're just on to the next insight. But now to be able to pause, and ponder. See what she was doing? She was turning aside to see. She was musing and marveling and meditating. And knowing her, I'm sure she was gaining insights of far greater impact and importance, vertically, than anything she was getting horizontally from me. Last year for the Bicentennial Deseret Book asked me to film just a couple of mini lessons based on Joseph Smith history to share with the Church. And this concept of learning from the Lord, of doing something with what God has given you in order to facilitate more coming later on, was one of the things that I tried to share in one of those videos. I shared a story of one of my old seminary students, affectionately known as FX20, who to me is such a beautiful embodiment of this principle. He learned to learn from the Lord. And it's a line upon line, precept upon precept kind of an experience. Moroni doesn't give Joseph everything in one visit. And the Lord never does that with us either. Well, what does he do the second time? Verse 44, In the midst of my meditation, I suddenly discovered that my room was again beginning to get lighted. And in an instant, as it were, the same heavenly messenger was again by my bedside he commenced and again related the very same things which he had done at his first visit, without the least variation. Now, on the one hand, this could be a little awkward for Joseph Smith. It's like, um, do, do, I, do I interrupt? Do I tell him, I, I, I already got this one. You, you taught this lesson last time. But that's not what Joseph was doing. To have a second repetition of the lesson he had before, President Iron used to say that repetition is meant to rivet the attention. Joseph, these are things you have to understand. Listen again. No variation. Some things are worth repeating in their perfect form. Think sacrament prayers. Think temple endowment. Some things are worth hearing over and over. Until they are internalized within us, until we can spot any difference in language, just like Joseph did with Malachi 3 and 4. But Moroni didn't stop there. He repeated everything with no variation, but once he had done that, he then moves forward. Have you mastered last week's lesson? Now you're ready for this week's. What comes next? He informed me of great judgments which were coming upon the earth with great desolations by famine, sword, and pestilence. Those, by the way, are the same three possible outcomes of King David's mistaken census. Trying to figure out how much flesh is on my arm to put my trust in. And so he counts his army. And the Lord said to him through a prophet, no, no, you have to put your trust in my arm. So let me remove a little of the flesh from your military arm. I'll give you three choices. Would you rather have famine, or pestilence, or sword. Well, in the last days, sadly, we'll get all three. It's to that extent we've placed our trust in the arm of flesh. It's to that degree that we have abandoned God. And then Moroni says, these grievous judgments would come on the earth in this generation. They certainly did. And they have been raining down on generation after generation ever since. Having related these things, he again ascended as he had done before. So all of these scriptures that hinted and pointed and prophesied of last days, second coming, the book of Joel perfectly, well, those signs, the times, and then he reiterates it, emphasizes more judgments and destruction, famine, sword, pestilence, preparing the earth, cleansing it for the coming of Christ. Now in verse 46, it's like tag team. You see this really well in 1 Nephi chapter 1, where it's tag team between Lehi and the Lord. And the Lord says something to Lehi, and then Lehi does something with it. And then the Lord does something else, and Lehi does something with that. And back and forth and back and forth, it's line upon line and precept upon precept. Well, Joseph actually instigated this one, praying to repent and to know his state and standing, and Moroni comes. Then Joseph muses, mar- marvels, meditates, and Moroni comes. Now what does he do? Joseph, it's your turn. Verse 46, By this time so deep were the impressions made on my mind. It suggests a certain softness of mind and heart that God could impress something on it. The fleshy tables, as Paul described them. Sleep had fled from my eyes. I hope that describes us. Are we awake or are we sleeping through the restoration? As Elder Uchtdorf once asked. And I lay overwhelmed in astonishment at what I had both seen and heard. I love Joseph's reaction there. Deep impressions. Wide awake. Overwhelmed in astonishment. Another wonderful Institute student of mine. This one, not yet a member of the church, sent me an amazing email when he said, you know, I was reading some other author not a member of the church and said there are only three kinds of prayers. Thanks. Help. Wow. And I love that third type of prayer. It's the one I don't think we offer enough of. That's the kind of prayer that Joseph is offering in 46, after Moroni's second visit. This is a prayer of, wow. This is awe and astonishment and deep impressions. God is beginning his work. It is go time. Remember what we saw at the end of the Book of Mormon? That what would the sign be that all of this second coming preparation was about to be fulfilled? What was the sign marking that the Father was commencing His work of keeping covenant, of gathering Israel? It was the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And here, the first hint that the Book of Mormon is about to come forth, and it is go time as prophesied by all of these Old Testament and New Testament prophets. Or at least, it's almost go time. As Moroni kept saying... It's about to be fulfilled. Not yet. And some of that timing depends on you, Joseph. Just how prepared will you be? And based on Joseph's reaction to the second visit, Moroni comes for a third. Verse 46. What was my surprise when again I beheld the same messenger at my bedside? Surprise. I hope we have the faith to always expect that God will come and teach us more, but at the same time to have the humility to always be so pleasantly surprised when he does, that we don't presume upon revelation, but we have faith that it will come in God's own time and in God's own way. Divine disclosure, as Elder Maxwell once described it, with the Lord in charge of the aperture, just how much light he lets through. And when the messenger comes again, what does he do? I heard him rehearse or repeat over again to me the same things as before. Again, do we tire of repetition? When I taught at the MTC years ago, I would have missionaries every once in a while, well, okay, every district, uh, who after a week or two of practicing the discussions with their companions would kind of start rolling their eyes and going, I've done this so many times, do I really have to repeat it again? And I remember during one particular district's time there, I made a trip down to Manti and did a temple session. And Manti, like Salt Lake, those are the two last temples to perform living endowments. And I remember in one particular part of the endowment, when the officiator was repeating by rote memorization, a particularly poignant part of the ordinance, his voice cracked and he became emotional. And I thought to myself, as I felt just this flood of the spirit How many times has this sweet old man said the exact same phrase? And yet it means something to him. Every time that he says it, I came back and talked to my missionaries about that experience and said, this may be the 50th time you teach this discussion, but it's the first time for the person that's hearing you. Give them the best experience you possibly can. All things new And here Joseph is hearing yet again, but still captivated by the message. And this time, a little bit more. I'll give you the same and then some. The same and then some. This third time, the same. And what was the then some? It was a caution. A caution telling me that Satan would try to tempt me, in consequence of the indigent circumstances of my father's family, to get the plates for the purpose of getting rich. But this he forbade me saying I must have no other object in view in getting the plates, but to, here's the thing, glorify God, first and foremost, and second, I must not be influenced by any other motive than that of building his kingdom. Otherwise, I could not get them. To have an eye single to the glory of God, and to seek ye first the kingdom of God, and to establish his righteousness. Everything else will then be added to you. Or, as is sometimes the case, Will no longer be of interest to you. In Joseph's case, you have to overcome the natural man and his natural tendency towards desire, monetary gain, physical prosperity. You have to see past the earth if you're ever to catch a glimpse of heaven. Do you remember what this same Moroni had written back in Mormon chapter 8? i am the same who hideth up this record unto the lord he called the gold plates the record he then said the plates thereof the golden ones are of no worth because of the commandment of the lord for he truly saith that no one shall have them to get gain but the record thereof is of great worth and whoso shall bring it to light him will the lord bless i talked about this in the video for mormon 8 that moroni is the first Book of Mormon prophet, to so clearly distinguish between the records and the plates. The plates? Ah, mere gold. Worthless. The record. Word of God. Priceless. Moroni completely understood the difference, and he would have to make sure that Joseph would understand the difference too. By the way, I would say the same applies to any of us. Whenever we try to obtain The knowledge of God or the blessings of God? What is it for? Why are we seeking them? What's our motive? And if it's to get gain or prominence or prestige, then that is priestcraft. And you will never obtain the things of God in that way. But if the whole reason we are pursuing knowledge or gaining education or trying to achieve a certain level of prominence is to glorify God and to build his kingdom. Then be my guest. The Lord will be the first to bless you with that. Remember what Jacob says in chapter 2. Before you seek for riches, and we could add, or anything else, the gold plates, a testimony of the gospel, knowledge of the scriptures, a call to serve. Before you seek for any of those things, seek for the kingdom of God. And after you have obtained a hope in Christ, see, it's all about order. It's all about priority. After you've obtained a hope in Christ, then you'll obtain riches if you seek them. Or obtain education or advanced degrees or popularity or or influence. Whatever you're seeking, you'll have it. If that's what you want. Because the Lord says, for ye will seek them with the intent to do good. Not, but thou shalt seek them. No, he already knows you will. You will seek them for the intent to do good. You can be trusted with it now. You can be trusted with your education. You can be trusted with your influence. You can be trusted with wealth. Joseph, you can be trusted with the gold plates because your motives have finally been purified. That is a caution that he needed to hear. And more importantly, as time would go on, that he would need to heed. This was a hard one for him, for good reason. His family had next to nothing. And Joseph had to learn to be okay with that. He could never be tempted to monetize the Word of God. 47 then describes the aftermath of visit number three. After this third visit, he again ascended into heaven as before, and I was again left to roll over and go back to sleep? No, to ponder on the strangeness of what I had just experienced. Do we ponder enough? I think, sadly, we're so focused on getting things done. There's an element of productivity that can get in the way of pondering. I see this whenever I see people run through the celestial room. And it's like, no, 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 no. It took two hours just to slow you down long enough. You could come into the celestial room and have your mind still enough to ponder the things that God has taught you through this wonderfully repetitive way. Ponder meditate, be astonished, sit and think and feel. That is so much of what the essence of worship really is. A little less do, a little more be. As he's pondering on this, almost immediately after the heavenly messenger had ascended from me for the third time, the cock crowed, This time, not after a disciple of Christ had denied knowing him, but after a soon-to-be disciple of Christ came to know his mission of following him so beautifully. I found that the day was approaching. Oh, in more ways than one, the day dawn was breaking, so that our interviews must have occupied the whole of the night. Now, I'll admit, this has been a long lesson so far, but I don't think it's occupied the whole of our night. Hopefully, that gives us a sense of just how many more passages of Scripture and how many more explanations Moroni had time to give Joseph. Or, conversely, just how long Joseph sat marveling and meditating and musing. Never tiring between lessons. Well, in 48, he shortly after arose from his bed, as usual, went to the necessary labors of the day. Sounds a lot like what he said back... In verse 27, doesn't it? I had to pursue my common vocations in life, even after something as incredible as the first vision. And here, again, I have to go as usual about the necessary labors of the day. Just because we have powerful spiritual experiences, it doesn't excuse us from the need for temporal work as we continue our labors of the day. And yet this time, this incredibly strong 17-year-old so often hired out by other men to come and and dig or farm or work. Joseph was a worker. He was a wrestler. He was as strong as they came. And yet, after this experience, he found that his strength was so exhausted as to render him entirely unable. His father notices this and sends him home, which lets you know just how worthless Joseph must have been as far as physical strength was concerned. He had nothing left. But as he tries to cross a fence, This incredibly strong, strapping youth, his strength entirely failed him, and he fell helpless on the ground, quite unconscious of anything. Again, that sounds like the first vision. That after the father and the son left Joseph, it took a while for his natural strength to return. But guess what it leads to? A fourth visit by the angel Moroni. This is a little different than the first three. In some ways, after one and after two, it was a matter of what am I going to do with this and thinking and pondering and so on. After the third visit, what am I going to do with this? I I guess I'll just keep these things and ponder them in my heart, as it says of of Mary uh, after the shepherds come. And he can't do anything with it. I think sometimes the Lord honors our valiant, though unsuccessful attempts. I've given all I've got. Okay, that's enough. I'll come back and give you more what message does Moroni have this time? Verse 49. He calls Joseph by name. Again, that's like the first vision. Joseph looked up and beheld the same messenger standing over my head, surrounded by light as before. It's one thing to notice light around an individual during the dark of night. It's another thing to notice light around an individual during broad daylight. Like I said before, this is a different kind of light. He then again related unto me all that he had related to me the previous night. While I am here, I might as well repeat the lesson, Joseph. And then another addition. It's always then and more. And this time was a command to go to my father and tell him of the vision and the commandments which I had received. According to one other account of this event, Joseph worries. But what if my father won't believe? And Moroni reassures him he will. After all, this is a day when not only young men have visions, it's a day when old men dream dreams, and your father has had some that have prepared his mind and heart to receive your message. I love that there is, there's a, a parallel here, that after the first vision, who's the first person Joseph sees? His mother. And after the coming of the angel Moroni, who's the first person that Joseph comments about seeing? His father mother and father, that this youth can turn to in their hour of spiritual growth or of spiritual wrestling, wondering, will my parents accept me? Will they believe me? Will they trust what I'm going through? And two for two, these wonderful parents of the restoration were there for a son who needed them. I hope we can be the kinds of parents or simply the kinds of people that other people will trust their spiritual experiences with, or even trust their lack of spiritual experiences, trust their wrestlings and their questions and their concerns and their doubts. Can we be the type of person that if I can't talk to them, they won't listen, they won't believe, they won't accept, that they can feel a reassurance, maybe not from Moroni, but from a still small voice within. They will. They'll listen, they'll understand, they'll still love and accept you. And what did Joseph do? I love the first two words of verse 50. I obeyed. Again, if we're watching the tag team, what do you do? Do you marvel and meditate and muse? Do you uh, sit in astonishment? Do you ponder? Do you obey? Do you do what the Lord has said to you in whatever message you've received? Joseph obeyed. He returned to his father in the field. He rehearsed the whole matter to him. And how did the father react? Joseph Smith Sr. lived up to expectation. He replied to me that it was of God. So different from the minister and so many others that Joseph shared his experiences with. His father knew it was of God. He told me to go and do. Sounds like Nephi. Go and do as commanded by the messenger. And so he did. I left the field, went to the place where the messenger had told me the plates were deposited. It's amazing how his strength has returned at one point, couldn't even get over the fence. The next moment, reinvigorated by the Spirit of God, he's ready to go hike the hill Gomorrah. And he knew it when he saw it. Verse 51 describes that hill. And then Joseph describes what he found there. A stone of considerable size that concealed the resting place of the golden plates. The way Joseph describes it in 51 and 52 is, I think, again, beautifully symbolic of the effort that is required of us to unearth the truths of God. This was a large stone, and it required, as he said in verse 52, a little exertion, probably more than a little. It required some leverage that he used when, as he got it under the edge of the stone. In fact, he described the stone as rounding and so large in the middle, but, but narrow on the edges so that there was earth over it. And I think it's beautifully symbolic to think, if I am to unearth the things of God, I have to remove the earthly influences. I need to dig back the dirt in my own life. I need to use whatever leverage I can as I plead and pray to God for guidance. I need to offer a little exertion and perhaps a whole lot of it. But as I do, the things of God open to my view. Or Joseph, the plates, the Urim and Thummim, the breastplate, all as stated by the messenger. But then in verse 53, when he tried to take them out, he was forbidden by the messenger and again informed that the time for bringing them forth had not yet arrived. Neither would it until four years from that time. But he told me that I should come to that place precisely in one year from that time and that he would there meet with me and that I should continue to do so until the time should come. For obtaining the plates. So began a four-year education process until Joseph could graduate into possession of the plates. Some of that was for him to get up to speed in learning the lessons that were necessary. Specifically, the one about overcoming temporal concerns and a desire for earthly attainment. According to a different account of this experience, Moroni said to him when he was unable to obtain the plates, You have not kept the commandments of the Lord. Therefore thou wast left unto temptation, that thou mightest be made acquainted with the power of the adversary. Oliver Cowdery added in a later account that Moroni said, Look, and Joseph beheld the prince of darkness surrounded by his innumerable train of associates. And Moroni told him, All this is shown, the good and the evil, the holy and impure, the glory of God and the power of darkness, that you may know hereafter the two powers and never be influenced or overcome by that wicked one. Again, this seems to be similar to the first vision. You have to know what you're up against. You have to conquer the darkness if you are ever to be enveloped in the light. And so for the next four years, Joseph returned. On that same day September 22nd the fall equinox equal parts light and darkness as we are forced to choose between them that was the choice that the restoration would present to the entire world according to the Jewish calendar by the way September 22nd of 1823 Jews around the world were celebrating Sukkot the feast of tabernacles commemorating the departure from Egypt and their journey through the wilderness towards the Promised Land. Israel was about to emerge from its wilderness wanderings. The Promised Land lay ahead through this restoration. On September 22nd of 1824, Jews around the world were celebrating the Eve of Rosh Hashanah, the Eve of the Jewish New Year. It was about to begin. On September 22nd of 1825, That was the day that Jews around the world were celebrating Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when Israel's high priest could finally cross the veil and enter the Holy of Holies. Joseph would allow that veil to be opened so that all of God's children could return home. On September 22nd of 1826, that's the only one of those yearly visits where there was not a Jewish holy day being celebrated. And then the final year, September 22nd, 1827, that was Rosh Hashanah. That was the Jewish New Year. A day of new beginnings as the restoration was unfolding. The book finally coming forth that would inaugurate and facilitate the gathering of scattered Israel. And as Joseph says in verse 54, As I had been commanded, I went the end of each year. And at each time, I found the same messenger there and received these two I words. I love them. Instruction and intelligence at each of our interviews. I love that he called them interviews. We get the sense of interviews in the church that it's about ascertaining our worthiness. And I'm sure that's happening here for Joseph as well. Are you ready for this? But also, what was passing during this interview? Instruction and intelligence which the revelations later define as light and truth, Joseph was receiving an ample supply of both of them. The instruction and the intelligence was meant to help him know what the Lord was going to do and how and in what manner his kingdom was to be conducted in the last days. A kingdom that Joseph was called upon to help build. Now, Joseph wasn't alone in that. He still isn't. And in this last final section that we see from verse 55 through verse 67, you start to see Joseph involve other people in this. So much of what has taken place up to this point is alone. Yes, he talked to his mother. Yes, he talked to his father. But now other people will be involved. I'll summarize it briefly. In verse 55, again, he's back to laboring. The necessity of laboring with his hands continuous labor in order to get what he considered a comfortable maintenance, although it is far beneath what most of us would be used to. I do love that he is helping us see the nobility of work and building the kingdom that just described in verse 54 would require a whole lot of work. Rolling up our sleeves, dirtying our hands, helping people. Verse 56 then describes the death of his oldest brother, Alvin, which was devastating to the Smith family. Alvin was as good as they come. A true man of God, self-sacrificing in order to try to help support his family. And tragically, through medical error, he died just a few months after Joseph's first visit to the Hill Cumorra, He had told Alvin about this. Alvin was captivated by this. He wanted to hear everything he could from his little brother. And on his own deathbed, He pled with Joseph to obey every word of command from the angel. Do everything you can to prepare yourself to bring forth this book of Scripture. One of the first great converts to the Book of Mormon. Never lived to see it come forth. And that was Alvin. In fact, Alvin, according to the angel Moroni, at one point the angel had told him, if you're going to obtain these plates, you have to bring the right person with you. When Joseph first asked who that was, the original right person was Alvin. One more reason for the devastation at his death. But he was not the only right person. And the right person that ultimately was with Joseph at the base of the hill Camorra the night he obtained the plates was Emma Smith. We meet her in verse 57, but not without first understanding what got him to move in the direction of Emma at the end of verse 56. There we meet a man named Josiah Stoll, who's been hunting for silver mines that he had heard might exist somewhere in his vicinity. Now with this, we go back to what we talked about earlier with seer stones and Urim and Thummim. That Joseph was a believer in these kinds of spiritual gifts. And again, to become a prophet seer and revelator, he would have to have faith in such things. The fact that he was hired because of a reputation for those kinds of gifts lets you know that other people... Had the same kind of faith or belief in them, much more common in frontier 1820s than it is in in modern day. But he hired Joseph to come, and search for this mine. That's why Joseph admits at the end of verse 56. Hence arose the very prevalent story of my having been a money digger. There's actually a fascinating master's thesis, written by a wonderful church historian named Mark Ashurst McGee, that talks about Joseph's role growing from rodsman to village seer, to prophet of God. And that in some ways, this was a matter of purifying a gift that he felt that he had, but didn't understand its true purpose. Does that sound familiar to you or me? Gifts that we thought were for one thing, ended up in reality being for something else. When we have those eye-opening moments where where we realize, that's why God blessed me with this. It was to build his kingdom. It wasn't to enrich myself. It wasn't to find silver mines. It was to translate golden plates, to find a record of great worth, not plates or silver pieces. The worth of those things pales in comparison to what he was going to use his gifts really for. But again, not only did that preliminary gift prepare him for the golden plates, it also put him in the direction of Emma Smith. Emma Hale until he married her. In 57, she's first mentioned, I was put to board with a Mr. Isaac Hale of that place. It was there I first saw my wife, parentheses, his daughter. I love that order. It definitely was that order for Joseph. Yes, it's his daughter, but first and foremost, she's my wife. You can kind of get a sense of that, because in 58, when it talks about all this persecution that's still following him, he, he did not have a good reputation among the neighbors, which means he did not have a good reputation among the soon-to-be in-laws. They did not want their precious daughter to marry him. But Joseph, again, considering her, his wife, more than Isaac's daughter, they eloped. He says it a little more genteelly in verse 58, I was under the necessity of taking her elsewhere. So they went to the local squire and were married there. Now, by verse 59, the time has come to obtain the plates. He has the right person with him. There's something to be said for that. The truths of God typically are not meant for you alone. And so often, God will give them to you because he intends for you to share them with others. That's not always the case. Sometimes there are spiritual experiences so sacred, they are meant for you and you alone. But often it's a matter of Why would I give you truth when it would stop there? I've learned over the years that God usually doesn't send much water through a kinked hose. And if you will unkink it and assure the Lord, anything you give me, I will share with those who might need it. Joseph is bringing other people into this circle. Others are involved. Verse 59. At length the time arrived for obtaining the plates, the Urim and Thummim, and the breastplate. And so we went on that same day as before, and the same heavenly messenger delivered them up to me, but again with something else, this time a charge, a charge that I should be responsible for them, that if I should let them go carelessly or through any neglect of mine, I should be cut off, but that if I would use all my endeavors to preserve them until he, the messenger, should call for them, they should be protected." It reminds me of Alma's words to Helaman in Alma 37 as he's passing the baton the, the gold plates down to him. You have to be responsible. Do not be careless. Do not neglect these things. Turn to the Lord for everything you need to know when you with with regard to these things and no power on earth or hell will take them from you. That is true for us with our testimony of the things of God too. A testimony is something you can gain And unfortunately, it's something you can lose. And it is typically lost when we are not responsible for it, when we neglect it or are careless. Instead, we have to use all our endeavors to preserve the spirit in our lives, to preserve the things that we know. And verse 60 lets us know that very quickly Joseph realized why the strict charge. It was no sooner known that I had them that the most strenuous exertions were used to get them from me. I see that in my study of anti-religious rhetoric. There are strenuous exertions being made out there to take from you your faith. Are your exertions equally strenuous to hold on to it? They were for Joseph. Every stratagem that could be invented was resorted to for that purpose. And stratagem is a good word for this too. How can I say things in a way that you'll doubt yourself? How can I shame you into disbelief? How can I shake you so that you'll fall? Later in that verse, it says, The persecution was such that the multitudes were on the alert continually to get them from me. And that seems to be our day with the 24-hour news cycle and the constant barrage of misinformation on the internet. On the alert continually. We need to be as well. But by the wisdom of God, Joseph says, they remain safe in my hands. And the same can be true of our own testimony. Do with them all that is required. Joseph did. And then leave it in the Lord's hands. It must have been such a relief for Joseph when he finally finished the translation, was able to give the golden plates back to the angel Moroni. Because the opposite of what Moroni had said, the plates mean nothing, but the record means everything. Well, not to the adversary's minions. They only cared about the plates. They didn't worry about the record. 61 allows us to go back to this thought of people attacking our faith. He says, The excitement, however, still continued, and rumor with her thousand tongues was all the time employed in circulating falsehoods about my father's family. So true of anti religious rhetoric. Rumor with her thousand tongues. Notice there's an excitement there. I've learned over the years studying anti-Mormonism and anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism, I call them the three S's. They seem to define so much of the way people attack other people's faith. The first S is to sensationalize it. Let's take some shock and awe, something that's really going to concern people. Let's get them excited about something. Second is to, let's make it as superficial as possible. And third, let's be as selective as we can in what we give them will only produce the information on the negative, nothing in the positive. And do you sense all of that in verse 61? The excitement, there's the sensationalism. Rumor with her thousand tongues circulating falsehood, there's the superficiality, there's the selectivity. As Joseph continues, if we were to give you a thousandth part, it would fill up volumes. I've read some of those volumes. That's something I try to study often, and it's fascinating, the approach that they took then, and continue to take today. Eventually that persecution was so intolerable, the intolerableness of intolerance, that they eventually had to move. And in the midst of all of that, their poverty, their persecution, they finally found a friend, in a gentleman by the name of Martin Harris, who gave them $50. I did the inflation calculator. That would be $1,300 in our day. Not bad. From a man who did not yet know just what a role he would play in the restoration. I just love the way he's described. We found a friend in a gentleman, someone gentle instead of angry and persecuting, a friend instead of an enemy. Finally, someone Joseph could receive help from instead of opposition. But by that timely aid, he says in verse 62. They finally get to their destination. And for the next several months, from December till February, he is spending time copying down the characters from the plates and beginning to try to translate those through the Urim and Thummim. Interesting how slow it all started. We talk about the miracle of like 60 something days to translate the entire Book of Mormon. And it was indeed that fast. But at the beginning, it was a slow, painstaking kind of I'm copying characters, I'm trying to translate them. Mental effort. Spiritual exertion Verse sixty three through sixty five then gives us the account of Martin Harris's trip to New York with the characters and translation and his experience with Charles Anthony. I won't belabor that story today because I want to talk about it in the context of section five of the Doctrine and Covenants, which we'll cover next week. It's an amazing story with some important things for us to understand. But since we spent the bulk of today's study with Moroni's words and warnings, can I conclude with one more? At one point during those four years of preparation, Moroni said to Joseph Smith the following that he would not obtain the plates until he had learned to keep the commandments of God. And then this fascinating phrase not only till he was willing, but able to do it. I am intrigued by those two words and the difference between them. A willingness to obey God's commandments, but also an ability to do so. So often I offer to God the willingness, but I fall short of the ability. And I know that ultimately God will expect both. In other areas of life, we have the ability to do some things, to roll up our sleeves and engage in the work to which God has called us. But do we have the willingness to match that ability? Joseph would have to develop both to be fully able to accept the commands and the commission of God. Those two words and the kind of consecration that lies behind them can teach us volumes. I love to apply them to Jesus Christ and to ponder what made him both able and willing to perform the Atonement. To apply them to Joseph Smith. What made him both willing and able to keep the commandments of God and to apply them to you and me. Are we able to join with Joseph in this work that God has placed before us? Are we able to roll up our sleeves and work for the salvation of our fellow men? Are we able to gather Israel on both sides of the veil? Are we able to navigate these last days of darkness and devastation? Are we able to prepare the world For the second coming of Jesus Christ, since that is the role of the restoration, are we able to help God keep his promises that he will bring all of his children home? And if we have finally, however long it takes, however many years of preparation under our divine mentors, when we finally get to the point when we are able to do it, the question still lingers. Are we willing? I pray that we will be, because it will take the efforts and exertion of more than just Joseph. It will require the full force of his friends.